I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you can't change other people, you can only change yourself. Well, it's not true. In fact, if you're a leader or a manager, it's your obligation to change other people, to help them become better at what they do, to become stronger. And if you care about the people in your life, then it's your longing to help them change in ways that support their own growth. This is the subject of my newest book, which I wrote with my good friend Howie Jacobson. It's called You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Employees colleagues, even family up their game. It's based on my coaching methodology that I've worked on over the past 30 years, brought to you in a practical step-by-step format that you can start using immediately. You can get it wherever books are sold. To download a sample chapter, either in written form or audio version, visit bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. That's one word, bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. And if you've already enjoyed You Can Change Other People, please consider leaving a review on Amazon to help others just like you discover the book. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Susan Schmidt-Winchester. We're very lucky. She's the Chief Human Resources Officer of Applied Materials. She's got 30 years of experience in HR, providing executive leadership for a variety of companies, including Rockwell Automation and the Kellogg Company. And she has written a really terrific book that's very brave uh, called Healing at Work, A Guide to Using Your Career Conflicts to overcome your past and build the future you deserve. Uh, So really excited to speak with her. Susan, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, Susan, I thought we should talk because you talk about this in your book and, and I think it's a good way to talk. There's two things that are probably very interesting to our listeners. One is you and, you know, who you are and how you became who you are and, you know, your work at Applied Materials and your work as a very, very accomplished uh, executive. And, and then also the book, uh, um, uh, Healing at Work, and they're both obviously intertwined. But let's start with your history. And I kind of want to give you a little bit of a few minutes of open forum here to just tell us, like, how did you grow up? What were some formative experiences? I'd love to have a sense of your path that got you to where you are today. Okay, sure. Yeah, how, you have a couple hours. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when I think about my career, you know, and if you look at the the career track that I took, you know, outside of looking in, would say that was a really amazing career. You've had a lot of great accomplishments. But what people don't know is what fueled the success, and it's really the story of where I came from. And what what fueled the success was. Um, an underlying belief I took away about myself from my childhood that for some reason I wasn't good enough. And, you know, as I entered into the career world, I had unconsciously um, set myself up to always be on the lookout for how and in what way could I prove myself to other people. And so if you go back in time to my childhood, actually, I, you know, when I think about my early years as, as a kid growing up, they were pretty good. My dad uh, was a minister in a fairly small community, and my mom didn't work for years, and it was sort of the perfect 
perfect scenario. My mom would walk my sister and me to work, to work. Oh my goodness. <laughs> she'd walk <laughs> us to school and we'd come home from school and she'd have chocolate chip cookies waiting for us and everything was good. And then all of a sudden it, it wasn't good. The, one of the good things though, was growing up in a church, I never actually realized I was a preacher's kid for years. My dad was really good about, you know, not putting certain expectations on my sister and me. And the upside of growing up in a church was I thought everybody had 300 family members. And so I think from a formative standpoint, it certainly shaped me to appreciate and value everybody. Everybody has a part to play in making a church work. And so I, I learned some great relationship building capabilities and watching my dad too. He was really good. Uh, you know, when, when he was working in this particular church, as I you said, like everything was going good and then suddenly yeah. it wasn't going good. And I'm curious about, you know, how old are you now at the point at which things were going good and then suddenly they weren't? I don't know specifically because I, I think I've disassociated from a lot of the past memories. Um, I always say my sister was the one who had the the, the memory of, of what happened. I would say I was probably somewhere in elementary school and uh -huh. was, um, you know, starting to realize that. In, and by the way, this isn't a story about blaming parents or, you know, staying a victim. But it's really about looking honestly at the experiences we have as kids growing up and better understanding the impact of those experiences and how they show up unconsciously for us in our workplaces. So what I mean was what changed was my dad, as my dad got older, as we got older, he became more unpredictable in his responses. And so small things that would not typically set somebody off would, would ignite a rage response from my dad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so just as an example, I remember one time running out the back door to go play with the neighbors and the door slammed, the screen door slammed loudly. And, you know, it, it was, it was an explosive reaction that was unpredictable. And so what started to happen as I remember, it was always feeling like I needed to be on guard and the feeling of walking around in eggshells. Um, my dad's anger was getting progressively worse is what I call them those sort of rage attacks. And um, his anger, his, his aggressiveness, his emotional explosions were directed at my mom and at me. And my sister, my little sister, Nancy, didn't experience that, that kind of reaction. And I remember feeling incredibly jealous that she wasn't taking the brunt of some of the anger. But the, the result was that my dad was dealing with his own issues from his own past but as a kid, we don't realize that. And so we're wired to find ways to stay as emotionally safe. And in some cases, for some people, uh, physically safe from the caregivers that we're growing up in, you know, in, in homes with. And um, for, for me, you know, again, I think it translated into somehow I was doing something wrong. And that if I could just be perfect, maybe he would stop yelling. And my dad was a very big man. And so when he would get angry, he would storm at me. And I just have these images of him with his face bright red, just, you know, almost like his teeth, you know, gnashing his teeth and yeah. just coming at me. It was a very scary feeling to be so small and to be at the at the end of that kind of, um, of energy and rage. Yeah. Um, and your response to that, which is a response that a lot of kids have, not only to something so um, aggressive uh, and blatant the way you're describing it, 
but even softer, uh, uh, softer responses from parents is like, I'm a kid, I'm completely 100% for my life dependent upon my caregivers. So I better do things to please them. I better keep them happy. I better accommodate in a way that, um, that keeps me safe. And, uh, and so I'm going to try to be perfect. I'm going to try to please, I'm going to try to do what it takes to fulfill the expectations of the people's whose life, uh, who, who my life depends on. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And, you know, what's interesting is first of all, I'm sorry that you had that experience and, 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 you know, to greater or lesser extent, there's, you know, a lot of painful experiences that, that that we have as kids that we can't deal with as kids that we don't we don't have the resources to deal with so we just try to again you know kind of perform in a way that prevents their arousal and 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 there's this sort of ironic side i don't know if it's ironic but it's this sort of side effect of that which is you've been incredibly successful in your life you have, you know, you're a, you're a top executive at a top company and, and it's, I, I, I sort of confess a certain insecurity that I have a little bit as a parent, which says, you know, I'm torn between just pure, like loving and connection and being totally supportive of my kids um, versus, you know, I'm not going to be abusive with my kids at all. Hopefully, please God. But but I, but there's a certain set of standards and intolerance that leads to very, very high performance. And I'm sort of like, I know it sounds absurd to sort of be bringing this up as a desirable attribute because there's a lot of abuse and suffering. And, and I, do you understand my question? It's like, it's yeah, like, I do. You know, it's fed your success in certain ways. And I'm curious sure. to talk about that. Yeah. So a couple of different things. It's a really good point. First of all, I think it's important to note that when I was going through my childhood and actually until for many, many years afterwards, I never would have associated with a growing up in a dysfunctional home that, that just, it was like, yeah, my, you know, my dad had some anger issues, but from a trauma standpoint, I knew that people, others were having much more serious experiences in their childhood. And so frankly, I just dismissed it and thought, well, you know, it is fueling my success. I am driven to perform that overachiever nature, uh, I think was certainly fostered growing up in that situation of feeling like I needed to try to prove myself in hopes that my dad would, would love me. Um, but the reality is, is that the research shows that two thirds of adults have grown up in a home where they experienced one of what's called the 10 adverse childhood experiences. And these are some of the severe things. It's, uh, it's emotional, uh, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, violence in the home, addiction, you know, there's a list of some pretty serious things. But the reality is, is that two thirds, nearly two thirds have experienced at least one of those 10 things and 40% have experienced two or more. And so I'll come back to your question here in a minute in terms of the fueling the success. The, the, The issue though, to think about is that many people are dealing with some of these after effects from our past. Right. And for me, I was completely unconscious to those effects. So we'll come back to that in a minute. But as far as fueling the success, the reality is, is that it absolutely did. 
And I also think that when you grow up in a home where there's some negative dynamic that we have to manage, and it may not necessarily be one of the 10 ACEs, it could be a parent that's overly critical or judgmental or you know, withholds some energy if the, they feel like the child isn't doing something that they want. But the reality is, is that we can go through our careers and still take all the benefits of that, those childhoods, all the resilience, all the, the pursuit of, of excellence into our careers. What I wanna suggest is that we can do that and have much less dysfunctional negative costs associated with the fact that the past is absolutely influencing us in the workplace. So the answer is yes, I'm grateful that I am driven and that I am an overachiever. What I am not grateful for was the negative aspects of that childhood because I would come home from work for years earlier in my career and replay the entire day. What did I do? What did I not do? I should have said this. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. This person's probably mad at me now. And beating myself up at night. You know, it's a vicious, dysfunctional way to live a life. So I kind of want to draw this distinction. What I'm hearing you say is there's there's success that's driven from a place of fear. And there's success that's driven from a place of of achievement or longing or love. and, and And that, you know, it's success can be correlated with you know either abuse or love you know like it's not um, abuse doesn't have the the you know doesn't hold all the cards for success and 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 you know part of the question that's that's in my mind that i guess i'm trying to manage as a parent is to sort of support my children's success and this is you know going to go to employees but from a place of of sort of support and as an ally, not as a critic, as someone who can say, hey, what is it that you want to achieve and how can I support you and help you get there because I know you can versus mm-hmm. you better get there or I won't love you. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that the the second part there of not loving you or somehow withholding love or expressing, you know, significant disappointment or in some cases, some of the very negative things that happen in childhoods um, is actually having an impact not only in how that that child thinks about him or herself, but also it is affecting their central nervous system and their brain. And, you know, this is the power of the science of neuroplasticity and coupled with positive psychology. When you grow up in a home where you have to be hypervigilant, and and that's true for many people, our, our, we, we, our brains are in overdrive trying to manage an uncertain experience. And as a result, our, you know, the neural pathways that get shaped and created in our, in our brains as we're growing up become very deep. And the, you know, the frustration is, that can I actually change those neural pathways? So, you know, if I have these beliefs about myself that are unhelpful, the inner critic that takes over on the inside of my brain telling me that I should have done this or should have done that. The, the good news part of the story, and this is why I'm excited about the book, Healing at Work, that Martha Finney and I wrote, is that we absolutely can reshape those neural pathways by having positive experiences and then spending time to integrate those positive experiences into our identities. And, and that's the hopeful story of healing at work is that, you know, we have a phrase, catchphrase, damage is not doomed and the rest of your life is yours. And so the opportunity is, and this is what was so powerful about my own experience in my career was the, the grind, the constant grind of that 
every single day feeling like I had to go and improve myself over and over and over and over again, um, absolutely had negative effects on my life in terms of my relationship with my kids. I was so worried about being accepted and validated by others in the workplace that I wasn't absolutely wasn't present for years for them when they were growing up. Right. You know, so I now think about the effects I had unintentionally on them as they were um, maturing and, and growing through their own childhood. And, and I have a lot of regrets about that. But the hopeful story, and this is why I'm so passionate about the book, is to, to teach people that you don't have to live this unconscious wounded career path where I see where I was for, I hate to admit it, 30 years of my 34-year career. And, um, and, and I see so many of my colleagues um, throughout all the different companies I've worked with who are also living this unconscious wounded career. Yeah. And it, over, it, overreactions. Yeah. And, and it explains like, you know, you, you, you explain the story behind toxic workplaces, right? You, you, you know, the, the reason why someone can be incredibly successful and incredibly toxic at the same time. You say something super interesting in the book. You say that um, the workplace is a really great place to get healed and to do healing. And I found that fascinating. Like, I think it's very, very brave of you to come out with a book sort of saying like, you know, like you're the head of HR at Applied Materials. Like it's a big company, and that's a big <laughs> position. And you're talking about healing at work, which can be, you know, and, and applied materials is like a tech company. It's not a touchy-feely company. And, nope. and you're you're coming out with something that can really be uh interpreted as kind of on the touchy-feely side. And I so I think it's very brave. And I and you make a very, very strong argument that I that I really loved that the workplace is like a good place to work out your issues, like to, to actually yeah. do your healing. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, in doing the work with Martha, you know, the realization was the workplace can be a laboratory for emotional healing. And, and it's because of a couple key things. One is this first realization of knowing that we have a choice between the unconscious wounded career path where, you know, that's a miserable place to be, even though you have success and the conscious healing career path, just an acknowledging that there may be some things from the past that are negatively affecting you today. We go into more detail, obviously, in the book. The second reason why the workplace is um, a place for practicing healing is um, actually based on the model that Dr. Martin Seligman uh, created in his book called Flourish. And he talks about five ingredients to flourishing in life. And Martha and I translated these five ingredients into the workplace because all five of these things are achievable at work. Number one, positive emotion. That's his first thing. It's got this model called PERMA. The P stands for positive emotion. And you know, you think about getting hired by a company and you're the one that's selected. You're the only one that got the job. You were the best choice for them. You know, it starts the whole path for positive emotion. Uh, the second element of Flourish is engagement. Companies are very focused on finding ways to engage and retain their workforces. So looking for all these different ways of having positive experiences at work, whether it's through an engagement survey or, you know, realizing that there's this opportunity to be engaged in a way that maybe we haven't in the past. R in the PERMA model stands for relationships. Of course, the workplace is full of relationships. So there's this opportunity to constantly be practicing our interactions with other people in the workplace. We'll come back to that in a minute. M stands for meaning. 
you know, a lot of companies have greater purposes. Our company is to make possible the technology that, that makes the world a better place for everyone. So finding jobs that have meaning, working for companies that stand for greater purpose, there's that opportunity there. And then finally, the A is about accomplishments, that when we are successful in having accomplishments, it's creating a positive experience in our brains and our central nervous systems that start to enable a, like a library of positive experiences. And so the workplace creates all these different opportunities for people to pay attention to the positive opportunities that are there to realize we can start building a repertoire of positive experiences, which is key in the world of positive psychology. But the reason why I think the workplace is such a great place for healing is that it is full of conflict. Every single day, there's conflict that happens in the workplace. Martha and I call conflict bumper car moments. And it's like, you know, you're at the old amusement park riding around in the bumper car ride and you're happy sailing along and all of a sudden slam, somebody comes crashing into you and it shakes your whole body. And, you know, you're thinking, what the heck just happened? Well, you know, think about all the things that create conflict in the workplace, getting passed over for a promotion, someone not uh, paying attention to you in a meeting, your boss looking at you with an angry look a colleague doing something that feels like sabotage. I mean, the, I, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of daily conflicts that happen. Why I think the bumper car moments are such a wonderful place for practicing um, emotional healing is that we can go into conflict with other people at work in one of two ways, either in an unconscious wounded way, being shaped and influenced by our old triggers and our old responses and our old negative over-the-top reactions. Or we can go into bumper car moments in a conscious healing place, which is being consciously aware. A, do you even know what your triggers are? I know my triggers. I get triggered if I feel uh, small, excluded, stupid, misunderstood. I mean, there's a whole list of emotional triggers that will create a physiological response in my body for fight, flight, freeze. And in the moment, it's easy to get lost in the adrenaline of the trigger and go into those old outdated scripts. What we teach in the book is actually, you don't have to have that old unconscious response. Typically when I see people having an over the top negative response to somebody at work, I'm almost always thinking, hmm, I wonder what happened to them. There's something going on here. They're having, a, they're having an unexplainable response to a situation that does not warrant this kind of response. And so using the bumper car moments, we actually take readers through a dissection of the bumper car moment, the triggers, the physiological responses, the old behaviors, the switch to stepping onto the conscious healing career path of realizing, uh-oh, I'm in a bumper car moment. This happened to me about a month and a half ago. <laughs> Great. So you know what I was thinking as I was listening to you? I want to go through an example. So maybe take us yeah. through an example because I, I think sure. everybody who's listening can can identify with this idea of a bumper car moment. Like everybody can identify with, they've been in a conflict in work and they perseverate over it and they're frustrated. Maybe they talk to other people about it and then they get, and it's like a suck of time and 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 energy. And so what I wanna, I, and, and you talk a lot also about self-acceptance, which is ultimately the goal of all of this. Like, you know, Correct. healing in a sense is getting to a place of self-acceptance. And so I wanna, I wanna see, like take us through and you could use yourself as an example or someone else, a bumper car mm -hmm. moment uh, all the way to self-acceptance and how that works. Okay, sure. 
So I'll give you an example. I'm not going to use myself, although it would be easy to use myself because the reality is we are all a work in progress and we never completely overcome some of these old things. But the way we handle them can be significantly more healthy with much more positive outcomes. So I'm going to give an example of an individual who was not selected for a big promotion inside the company. And the person's response, you know, of course, you're going to be disappointed when that happens if you're not selected for a big opportunity. Uh, this was a big vice president position. There were a number of internal candidates. This goes back quite a few years. And the person, uh, when not selected, they did very well. They ranked very high in terms of their, you know, their final scores through the, the selection process, but they weren't the, the top choice. The person's response, they were so triggered emotionally of unworthiness, of having no value, you know, all those emotions that they were uncontrollably emotionally upset in my office on the day after the, the decision was made and they weren't picked. And to the point of almost like emotional obliteration, I mean, they were just a puddle of emotion on, on my, my, in my office. And they had assumed that because the company didn't select them for this particular position, that they had no value, that they were, you know, meaningless. They, they, they were not worthy. They were not good enough. It triggered all of those old emotions. And the, the response was, you know, the physiological response was, um, the, you know, the emotional response to, to being, um, excluded from something important. And, you know, so, as we talked through the situation, their conclusion was they had to leave the company. You know, it was a sort of extreme response to not being selected. And what we did was, you know, it's almost like slowing down time. When people get lost in that adrenaline warp of emotion, they have no choice. They can't, you know, you can't, you can't see things objectively. And so it's a matter of helping the person to manage the physiological response. Sometimes, you know, we, we actually teach a process in the book called the rapid power reclaim. And step one is all about creating choice. And one of the first things you have to do is manage the physiological emotion coming up. And there are different ways to discharge that emotion. Uh, you know, there, I won't go through all the different techniques, but there are ways to process the negative energy that's going on inside of you. Um, it can be done through art. It can be done through physical expression. You know, there are different ways to do that. So sometimes you just got to get Is the idea when you're processing it to fully emote it in some way, not to repress it, but to let it out in some way. You can shut yourself in a room and scream. You could draw yes, or paint yes. or you could yep. write or you could yep. do something that doesn't attempt to contain or repress it, but to let exactly. it Exactly. That's exactly right, because that's deep inside of us. When we're, when we're wired from our childhood, all of that emotion, all that raw pain, you know, for me, that abandonment, rejection, all that is inside of us. And so the first step is to try to release that. And, and that's what we did. I mean, I just let this person really express themselves and, um, and getting it out of our body. So you, it's like, you have to, you have to release it, discharge it. It's the best way I can explain it. Uh, there's a woman um, who's written a book called Sketch Poetic. Her name is Sheila. And I think her last name, I hope I get it right. I think it's Darcy, Sheila Darcy or Darby. Amazing. And she talks about purging the emotion out of our bodies. Mm. And, and she, she does it through sketch and, you know, getting the emotion out on paper. Uh, just to get it out of our bodies. It's like an energy force that has to come out. Right. Right. And so it, it's a way of processing the energy before you can actually realize 
that you have a choice in terms of how you elevate your action. So the first step is creating choice, which is all this discharging of the energy and realizing that you're on the unconscious path, time to get on the conscious path. Mm -hmm. And then the second step is elevating action. And so the elevating action in this case for this particular person was, okay, um, elevating action isn't about resigning. (laughs) That is not an elevated reaction. That's an unconscious wounded reaction. So the elevating action is what have you learned from this process? You know, how has this made you a better leader? How does this position you better for the future next opportunity that's likely going to come along the way? You know, so it's a, it's a reshifting of the brain from the negative into the positive, this elevating action. What can you do differently that has a positive outcome versus negative? And that's exactly what we did. You know, so it was like, okay, you know, let's step back and look at the decision-making process that the hiring manager made, given the context of the role, given the requirements and the dynamics going on, you know, let's walk through, you know, if you were the hiring manager, who would you have picked between you and the person that got the job? And so because we had discharged some of that emotion, the individual was able to say, oh, well, you know, you're right. I can actually see why the other person got the job. You know, they can become much more objective. That's another element of elevating action, being able to see the scenario differently than we did in the unconscious state. So and you, then also, the first yeah. step is to discharge the emotion. And by the way, when you're discharging the emotion, are, are you doing that with, you know, like you've got the you know, you're head of HR, you've got this executive, this person, or do you tell them to go jump up and down and, and, you know, bang on a cube and scream in a closet? Like, are you? Yeah, usually, usually what I'll do is I'll say, you need to do some work first before we can process this. And then I'll give them a couple different techniques to try to get to process and discharge that energy. They do it on their own. And, you know, in this case, the person, we took a, a night between when they first came in and the next day when we met another time. But it's a way of letting it go. But yeah, yeah I let them do that on their own. I'm not there for them when they're do, doing do that. You, do, you, do you receive skepticism in return? Do you, like, what's your... No, generally, first of all, generally, I would say people are, are feeling too much pain. You know, they want the pain to stop. Right. And when I say, I have a path for the pain to stop, are you willing to try it? You know, I probably don't say it quite that directly, but that's basically what I'm offering is I know you're hurting right now. Would you like to feel a different way about the situation? And do they generally say yes? Because they've walked into your office hoping that you could maybe change the, you know, change the, like why are they coming into your office? In this case, I think the person was coming into the office originally to tell me that they were going to resign. Right. And that they they were very upset that they weren't selected. So how do you, how do you (laughs) switch that? How do you shift? They're like, I'm coming in here to resign to, okay, I'm going to take your advice and I'm going to take the night and I'm going to discharge some of this emotion and then I'm going to come back and we're going to have another conversation. How do you, because that seems like both the courageous and the challenging hill of saying, you know, like, how do you, how do you make that shift to get them on board? Well, it's different with every person because every person's in a different state, right? And so uh, in this particular case, you know, and I learned this from an executive coach I had years ago, so I can't take credit for it. Uh, the executive coach's name was Tony Lynn Chinoy. And I, she used it on me once and I used it in this particular case and it worked great because it worked really well on me when she did it on me. <laughs> but I basically said to the person, look, you know, you can resign next week if you like, but are you willing to give it a week before you decide to resign? Are right. you willing to look at this differently? Right, so you have the choice, you could always resign, right. but right. let's not do it today. Let's process this and see if we can get some good out of it. 
Great. One of and the things so I often say is people don't resist change. They resist being changed. So you basically put the ownership back. You go, here's something you want it or you don't want it. That's great. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then, and then you go to this next step of elevating. So now you've discharged the emotion. Yep. You're not coming in so emotional. Now let's think about this critically and, and let's, you know, kind of put things in perspective and, and approach it with the prefrontal cortex, not the amygdala. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> and, exactly. Yes. And then what's the third step? The third step is called celebrate and integrate. And so when we handle one of these bumper car moments in a different way than we have in the past, mm -hmm. we catch ourselves and say, I don't want to respond unconsciously. I want to respond consciously. And you go through the creating choice, elevating action, and then you have an outcome. It's really key that you have to celebrate and um, experience that positive, different response. That's the reshaping of the neural pathway. Right. That's the step to integrate it into our identity. Because the more positive experiences we can have through these bumper car moments, we start to build up this library of success of responding differently. And so the celebration, I, I actually keep on my iPhone a list of ways that I can celebrate when something's gone well that I've had a different response. I haven't had a triggered unconscious response. I've had a positive response. It could be as simple as going outside in nature. And just like I did when I was processing myself through a bumper car moment six weeks ago, after I handled it differently and had a very positive outcome, I went outside and just stood in my yard and looked up at the sun and the blue sky and felt the warmth of the universe surrounding me and just take, I, I'll never forget that moment because I handled my own bumper car moment very differently. And I was incredibly happy with the outcome. That step of, of feeling it in, in feeling that positive outcome expanding inside of us, it starts to integrate into our identity that we are able of managing these conflicts in a much more productive way than we ever realized was possible. And so it's a three-step model of, you know, how do you regain your power rapidly? Rapid power reclaim are those three steps. And that right. third step is so key in embedding that positive experience into our identity to help shape the neural pathways off that old, outdated, you know, limiting belief triggered response into a, you know, I can come at this in a very conscious in the moment way, interpreting what's going on and look at it objectively and manage my emotions, my triggers. And that's the success of healing at work. That's beautiful. Uh, how was it for you to come out with this book? It's, it's, it, you know, <laughs> it's a very, yeah, you're, you're very vulnerable in the book. You're very, uh, you know, honest and open. And I'm curious what it was like for you. Well, I will say it almost didn't get done. I almost didn't publish it because of my own fears of, I'm going to get all emotional. My own fears of being judged, mm -hmm. potentially professionally rejected for being that open. I was worried about family members who would be critical of my telling the truth about some things that happened in my childhood, particularly from my sister. And I was stuck. This was like January of 2020. Like I, I said to my co-author, I don't think I can do it. And all of my, all of my own triggers were coming up and I'm, I can't believe how emotional I'm getting. Take, take a moment, take a moment. I was, I was very blessed. Um, Martha, my amazing co-author recommended 
uh, she'd seen something offered uh, by a woman named Celine DaCosta, who was doing a 90-minute intensive session with people who wanted to discover their story, go really deep on understanding their story and their why for their story. And she had a New Year's Day special in 2020, so I signed up for it. And it was the most remarkable experience because what she did, and I don't know how she did it, but what she did was she she was able to take me into a very deep place about why did I want to write this book? Mm -hmm. What was my deep, deep why for sharing my own stories, for being completely open and vulnerable about me? Mm -hmm. Some things that I'm not particularly proud of. And she, in this process was when I discovered that I felt incredibly driven to help teach people that they can live a conscious healing career and that we don't have to be in this unconscious state throughout our careers, which I think is full of pain and suffering, addiction, unhealthy behaviors. I know for me, I used alcohol, Chardonnay to take off the edge of my feelings of not being good enough. I regret the time I spent at work trying to prove myself versus building a relationship with my sons. And it was in that clarity of the work with Celine where I realized it was my responsibility to bring this message forward, to give people a different way of experiencing their careers in a far healthier, in a far healthier way. Mm-hmm. And I think it was through that process that I finally said, okay, let's do it. And, um, and decided just to go for it. And it was really because of the clarity of my why, my why. Right. And, and very brave. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, thank you for sharing that. I'm curious, you know, now that you, that you were brave and you did it, uh, a, the kind of feeling that you received by doing it and also the kind of reception that you've gotten for the book. Like you were, you know, you were very, you were scared. You just said about, you know, if I, if I let this out, how will people respond? How did people respond? Well, uh, I'm super excited because <laughs> it's been really powerful. I, I mean, I honestly am kind of blown away. Uh, I, you know, a professor at the Berkeley Haas Business School read the book. Dr. Mark Rittenberg, he reached out to me personally and said, you need to write a syllabus to teach this to my MBA students and my EMBA students. So I'm working with him to do that. Uh, he's also the founder of the Berkeley Executive Coaching Institute. They're holding their annual conference next week. I'm their keynote speaker on healing at work for the executive coaches. Uh, the article was highlighted last week in a U.S. News and World Report article by Robin Medell, I think is how she says her name. And so to get that kind of coverage for the book is exciting. Jack Canfield, the author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, who's written, you know, five or sold 500 million books. I had a um, privilege of working with him this summer in his mastermind. And of course, part of it was he read the book. And he said of the hundreds and hundreds of books he's read, it's in his top five favorite. It's been pretty powerful. And, and, it, and to your point on my own healing journey, I am such a different person today than I was before Martha and I started partnering together in, in 2018, taking what I had done with a, a fairly amateurist um, manuscript that I finished in 2017 and turning it into healing at work. It has been a journey towards discovering that when we are living the conscious healing career path, we are responding from a place of deeper self-acceptance and that it is nobody else's job to determine our worth and value. It's our job. And ultimately, 
as hard as my dad was to be my dad, I realized in the writing of the book that he was actually the greatest teacher of developing my own sense of self-acceptance because in his, his, I guess, absence of what I perceived as accepting me, he was basically teaching me the lesson that it's not his job to tell me whether or not I'm good enough. It's my job. And I have great appreciation now for him. Um, as my dad, he had his own damaged past, uh, which we won't get into now, but he did the best he could. And I'm grateful because now I get an opportunity to share some of the insight that have come that has come along this path. And I'm appreciative that, that you have. We've been talking with Susan Schmidt-Winchester. She is the Chief Human Resources Officer of Applied Materials, and most importantly, the author of the book that we've been talking about, Healing at Work, a guide to using career conflicts to overcome your past and build the future that you deserve. Susan, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you for your presence, your vulnerability, your insight uh, uh, for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's, uh, it's been emotional. <laughs> I really appreciate the opportunity. If you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast, then you also might enjoy my newest book, You Can Change Other People. You can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold or by going to bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. That's one word. If you've already enjoyed the book and found it useful, consider telling a friend or leaving a review on Amazon. Leaving a review helps retailers recommend the book to others just like you. So it's really helpful. Thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next great conversation.